You are now tuned into the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for conversations on hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audience. Today's guest is Dr. Janice Ran. As a professor at the University of Lethbridge, Janice spent her career working on issues relating to art and education. In 1997, she wrote an early account on Canadian hip hop called Painting Without Permission. The article, which featured in the Material History Review, was later adapted into a book by the same name in 1999. Both pieces look at describing her own experiences in the early to mid-1990s, discovering graffiti in Montreal, and getting to know the community personally. The book is relatively hard to come by today, however, the article mentioned is readily available online, and I highly suggest you give it a read. This conversation centers around her experiences in the Montreal scene, her findings, as well as thoughts on the current scene and its influences. That said, please welcome to the show, Dr. Janice Ran. First thing, Janice, uh, again, I said this at the beginning of the call here, but I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak to me here today. I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I love the piece, and uh, I'm excited to kind of dive into it and, uh, and talk about it. All right, let's go. Um, so I, I know it's covered briefly in the article. However, I'd like to give this conversation some kind of background context. Um, can you explain how you became interested with graffiti culture in this line of work? Uh, I was in Montreal. I just moved there from the Arctic after living in the Arctic for 10 years. I was a, first as a music teacher and then teaching printmaking, and then I was an artist in the Yukon. So I wanted to, uh, I felt like I was uh, living in isolation, too young to be living in the bush, so I moved to urban. I chose Montreal to do my MFA to be in a city, and so I was uh, looking around the city and noticed a lot of graffiti in my neighborhood, Montreal at that time was all old warehouses and uh, I was living by the canal, which at that time was undeveloped. And uh, so there was a lot of graffiti in my neighborhood. So there would be political graffiti and then there would be the signature graffiti. And I was more interested in the signatures because I would start to recognize them in different parts of the city. So I became, um, I like it would make a map of and give to people where they could find different. It became sort of um, my own project. It wasn't for a university or anything because I was, doing my MFA, which had nothing to do with, with this, but it was a way of getting to know the city that I would document these signatures throughout. Yeah, you mentioned... So the that's article. how I got to know Montreal. You mentioned in the article that there was a specific site and it was kind of closed off and you and your husband would end up going there and then showcase it to, to friends as well and bring your friends to this kind of hidden place um, that most people wouldn't end up kind of knowing that there was any sort of lively activity going on there. But what you realized is that every time that you ended up going, there was um, there was new art being kind of put onto these canvases and clearly that this was an active canvas that was taking place in an otherwise pretty like desolate area. Um, can you explain kind of that moment and, and how um, that kind right. of realization? That was a turning point for me because that, that I was sort of, I was documenting graffiti on the city, but after I, that was so exciting. It was the Red Path Complex, which was an old sugar refinery right on the canal, big red, beautiful building. You could barely see the signage of Red Path on the top of it. And there's a chain link fence around it, but I saw there was a hole in the chain link fence. And I saw some graffiti on the outside, so we got off our bikes and crawled in. And inside there was an inner courtyard. But first, you're going through this abandoned warehouse, and there's graffiti all throughout it. But as soon as it was a sunny day, and we came out of this dark building into the courtyard, and it was red brick with murals all around us, 
up high. You wondered how they would get to it. And some of it was, um, it's almost like they were battling. It was like a hip hop battle saying, got you C's and um, a timer. So it was, they were signing them and I got, to, so they were the community of, of hip hop graffiti in Montreal in that square. And they were all competing with each other. So every time we'd go, there would be a new piece up and it became for me the center of, of graffiti. I was so excited that, yes, I made a, a map of that whole location. So it was the most amazing public art site and, Although I guess it was illegal and to go in there, and it didn't last very long. It was about a, a few years, and then um, they started to feel trapped in there because if the police came, there was nowhere for them to escape. So. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I so I'm trying to document Canadian hip hop as well. I'm writing a book on the history of hip hop in Canada, and it's not covering, of course, everything. Um, you you can't really cover everything in the scope of one book. But I am looking at um, kind of key communities that I feel like have really contributed to the scene as a whole, and I'm trying to. to to kind of do oral history interviews with the community members that are there um and of course there's there's different elements to hip-hop the the mc the b-boy the graffiti artist the dj but it's really the the graffiti artist that ends up being the most elusive kind of subject to, to study um uh, mostly because of the illegal kind of aspect to it um the the anonymity uh, the anonymity that kind of um encompasses their career um it's not something that it's it's kind of hard to find their real names in order to even track them down later on um well, and the way i Found, yeah. The way I found C's was it was in the newspaper that he had been convicted of the court case and that he was given community service out in uh, West Montreal at this art center, Stewart Art Center. So I w- drove out there. Actually, I biked out there. I didn't have a car at the time. And when I knew he was teaching and met him and sat with him and the kids, and it was, I was so, <laughs> he, he was a mentor to these kids, but he was because they were saying, God, where are the warehouses that we can go in? And, but I thought it was so funny that this this mainstream art community center hired him to teach these kids. But what he was doing was telling them how to be careful and not to go into these these warehouses because you could get hurt. And so he was advising them like this this older guy. And through him, then I met all the other graffiti writers because he became very interested in and showing me everything because I showed him my documentation. Of, so he saw that I had been taking it seriously for a while and he was the first graffiti writer I met. That's amazing. And <clears throat> from there, I assume he was able to connect you to the rest of the graffiti community that was taking place in Montreal at the time. Yeah. And once you get to know one, it, it sort of spirals because it's such a tight community. I think it was quite a unique time in Montreal. And that's why for me, I was following the evolution of graffiti at a time when it was at its but it was just beginning. Really, it was slow, slow in seas started it. And then you had people, the group come from Ottawa, Gene Starship and Evoke. They came from an art school. So I soon saw that there were two distinct communities. One, they called themselves New School. that came sort of an art school context. And the old hip-hop graffiti, which had a much tighter structure in terms of, of its mentorship and community and following a way of learning that was very specifically based on old school hip hop. Yeah. 
Yeah, so much of the paper kind of looks to describe how graffiti culture is really experienced and what it actually is. Um, and for the paper, as you said, you, you spend a considerable amount of time in this Montreal graph scene, but you also end up reading fanzines and secondary sources like Castleman as well. Um, did you feel like the Montreal scene was was really an accurate representation for graph culture as a whole? Or, or rather, I guess, do you think that the Montreal scene was similar to scenes taking place in, say, New York? I think it was very similar to what was going on in New York, but uh, <clears throat> there were a lot of, uh, I don't know if, if New York was as international, it's internationally known, so I'm sure there are people coming there. From, it was it's a very global community at this time. It's still based on public space and not the internet, but people were coming to Montreal because it was cheap to live there and there were so many spaces available. So it, it was very much based on, on location. And I saw that later when, um, well, it just evolved so quickly. People were coming from all over, and then we, we started to organize events. Steve and I, where I helped to get the, the space legalized. It was owned by Concordia University. And there were, there were people there from all over the world, and hip-hop writers, and it was an, an amazing event. I know there's, um, I guess, I, I'm not sure if it's solely graffiti um however there is kind of conventions hip-hop conventions that take place in montreal um i'm, I'm thinking most notably of under pressure was under pressure festival or convention under pressure is seized okay seized was that around when pressure. okay was that around when you first started kind of diving into it or was that something that came a little bit afterwards it was just starting okay because i started documenting in 1993 met seized in 1995 so really, it was under pressure with seas and flow. Gotcha. And then urban expressions with um, Gene and Evoke and Disturbo. And they were more interested in making big murals. And so they respected each other, the two communities, but the seas sometimes dissed uh, urban expressions because he thought they were getting too commercial. But then the urban, ex- um, they they both became you know, mural painters in Montreal, both groups. I've never attended Under Pressure. Yeah, I've never attended Under Pressure myself. Um, However, I've done countless interviews throughout the country, and I've heard lots of stories of the festival itself, but generally from a little bit later on. um, Those first couple years of of going to the festival yourself, and kind of as an outsider to this, but trying to learn more about it, what was your reaction to seeing the kind of celebratory nature of this and to see it celebrated rather than something that's kind of taken and hidden away from the rest of society. No, it's fantastic. I've made a video about it. It's called, um, yeah, it's called Pain Without Permission, same as the book, but um, because it was to see every age group there enjoying and everybody getting to show their stuff and it was within um was so organized like to see them so motivated like in the video i i thought it was going to be canceled because it was pouring rain so it shows these guys showing up with the scaffolding and everything and they just they just ignore the rain they said it was going to go you know and then it cleared up and it was a beautiful day great success and but the next day i went back to take some more pictures and there was this really old guy there and he was so excited to see me look at this this isn't graffiti this is art and then another guy came up to me and said, were you here yesterday? Wasn't that amazing? I mean, people really felt it, that there was something very special. 
One of the one of the key focuses in your writing here, um, at least in the article, was on the cultural codes of ethics that the graph community really valued and put effort into both maintaining and policing. Um, coming from an art background yourself, did this come kind of as a surprise to you? Were you aware of other art communities that focus so much uh, kind of effort into to ethics and codes of conduct? And as you say in the paper, kind of keeping it real? Well, keeping it real would be uh, another thing, too, because all the young people sometimes uh, were dissing the older ones because they're they're young, and and so their whole thing is the illegal aspect, right? They're coming at it, and they're coming, some of them out of punk culture where they're iconoclasts, and and then some of the older ones are, they're involved with the media, and they have these celebratory events, and their motivations start to change and evolve, right? And so they're telling these young ones to, to be careful and they're seeing, seeing how quickly that it's, it's spreading and they're seeing, oh, wow, we're mentors. We better take this seriously. So it actually helps in their, in their maturity. And because of the media attention, they have everything down in sound bites. So it was, you know, studying my own practice at first, I was a little reticent to, cause I wasn't training as an anthropologist and I didn't, sometimes I wondered what I was doing studying them, but it was mainly just, curiosity but I felt sometimes I was I didn't know how to position myself recording about the other right because I wasn't part of the community sure and I didn't paint like that but but um did I get off the topic of the ethics okay so I saw the first time I saw that was with C so that did surprise me that he was teaching these young and I could see these young kids they were just ready to go out there and he could sense it so it's all like he's trying to put on the brakes and he was actually teaching them, but maybe he was performing for me as well, right? But I thought awesome. it was very, very um, smart for this community center to hire him because they knew that these young kids were doing graffiti. And so what, what a better way than to have an older graffiti writer be their mentor and to teach them because they wouldn't listen to anyone else. So. And it was the older one that was mainly just about wanting a space to paint and to evolve as artists, it was the illegal aspect starts to become less important for them. But then they do say, yes, but we have to keep it real because they want to be relevant to the, to the community. And they still, a lot of them are have notions of public space should be open to that. They don't believe in the gallery system, that there should be public space you know, available for them. But at the same time, they want to control the public space because... They don't want to normalize where people say, okay, this is the graffiti site because that takes, you know, the edge off of it and it takes it away from them. So they, they like choosing their own places and having control over their community. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like there's really kind of an ideology that exists within the hip hop kind of sphere. And I think different elements have different aspects of it. And I think graffiti is a great one to kind of single out there because I think it does exist very uniquely um, compared to like emceeing and DJing and b-boy culture. Um, although there is still that kind of hip hop ethos of, of, as you say, keeping it real and trying to, to stay true to these original values that um, kind of the New York hip hop scene in the South Bronx would have ended up emulating in the, the mid to, to late 70s. 
70s um, and early 80s as things start kind of popularizing a little bit. Um, so I think it does go beyond just, um, I guess, a performative nature being in, in front of you and, and trying to, to do something um, that seems respectable. I, I feel like it really is kind of true to the culture that exists. Um, but I also feel like that's fairly unique. I, I come from a skateboard background myself, and that's really what got me introduced to, to hip hop. And I seen part of that with skateboarding, but it was much less defined um, when I kind of, I guess, crossed over into the hip hop community. The the cultural codes were were very much vocalized. Um, it wasn't it wasn't something that you could ignore. And if you tried to belong to the hip hop culture um, without kind of uh, prescribing to these uh, cultural values, it would be something that you would almost be outcasted to the community. Um, and it, it would be very clearly that you were almost like a poser. Um, that um, that wasn't something that was as defined as uh, as it was in, in hip hop and skateboarding, but it was it was there at the very least. Um, but I, I guess I was curious if, if you saw other art communities dealing with this same sort of um, cultural codes, because I, I I don't uh, yeah I'm, I'm not too familiar with I guess other art communities besides um, besides hip hop in, in many ways. Hip hop's really kind of been my focus. I guess that's why I was attracted to the community because I was in the art history community, I mean the institutional community, right, where you do your yeah. assignments and and you get che- check it off and you get a great. Uh, most of the people, I was actually doing my doctoral, I did my MFA, and then I was uh, toying with the idea of um, of doing a PhD on new media because I was watching, I was taking new media courses, and I thought it was interesting how. It was a very loose structure of, of learning assignments. They didn't teach us technique. We had to figure it out ourselves. We were just we would meet and show the work and talk about content, and it was all about conceptual ideas. And I found that the students, when I got to know the graffiti writers, and I would say, well, the, the students at the university are much less motivated, self-motivated, right, in terms of intrinsic motivation. And that was such an ethos for me that the whole purpose for doing art was for the love of art, because who needs art if you don't love it, right? And... And I thought, why are, they, are there just, there must be just too many people in art school. <laughs> They're just not as motivated. And I, so I was just intrigued by this loose structure of learning outside of an institution. And I was really respected it. And also, like you came out of skateboarding, so you know, the multi, uh, the grade level I thought was unique as well. And the way of learning by watching and, sure. and mentorship. And practice, practice. So it was very much a physical practice. And so in the institution, now it's very much conceptual practice. And I felt the physical was missing. So I liked the graffiti that it was so much based on physical practice. And then maybe talking about it with the media. and But it was really more skill-based, but more uh, modernist in terms of uh, formal and I was very interested in the whole form too of how they learn because it made me think of music. I also learned music and uh for music. And in terms of um having letters as a form, but then it allowed you to, to play with it in any way you want. Like say you have a blues structure or a book structure within that you can bring everything you learn into it, right? So it took away sort of the stress of because I found in, in art school everybody had this stress of what are we going to make art about? And so sometimes it paralyzed them. So I felt that they, they it was un, unique to have this form of 
a signature graffiti that had a history and, and a way of learning. Yeah, one of the things that you note in the article, which I think kind of uh, leads to this conversation, is um, is the outside influences that graffiti artists were taking at the period of time that you were studying them. Um, you mentioned Japanese anime, and you also mentioned the the work of the cartoonist uh, Von Bodhi. Um, and I found both of those to be really kind of fascinating elements. Now, I've heard Von Bodhi's name mentioned in different interviews I've done with graffiti artists around the country, um, but I never really took the time to to kind of explore Von's work. Um, but when you do so, it's, it's very apparent that a lot of these um, kind of early hip hop graffiti styles emulated um, emulated uh, Von Bode's, uh, Bode's work um, pretty heavily, from the bubble letters to um, a lot of the character creations that he would have ended up doing. It was it was very much in that same style, but it's interesting because it's taking it, Von Bode was not a graffiti artist by any means. Um, he, he passed away I think in '75, so that was before. Um, before graffiti even would have ended up taking off kind of in the mainstream um of course it would have been kind of circulating around new york at that period of time but not uh not something that was really identified with hip-hop culture anyhow um so they were clearly taking kind of outside influences and bringing them into their own art and in trying to work within that structure um that's really interesting to me because I always kind of considered graffiti to be something that was new and creative and um, boundary pushing within the art form itself, right? So different hip hop artists or graffiti artists would um, would work at kind of experimenting and, and pushing their craft, and of course that did happen. But to see that there was original kind of outside influences was was nevertheless really interesting to see where those kind of things ended up stemming from. And then Japanese anime as well at that period of time just wasn't as popular as as what it's kind of become today of course everyone kind of knows what anime is now but at that period of time you would have had what like tsunami maybe um on on some television stations in in north america um so you'd have the occasional thing i think you mentioned sailor moon in the article um but uh for the most part it was a it was a very kind of unknown um again kind of hidden art form uh that was being practiced in north america with with hip-hop and graffiti culture which i again this this whole kind of thread i found fascinating in the article mm-hmm. well it's um they're very open to influences and it fits the uh von boudet and others it fits the the aesthetic of of the letters comics because you have the outlines and then the fill-ins and so it just fit beautifully into so you could see where they would be pulling in these influences and especially I found the new school coming out of art school, they were very much into the figuration as opposed to the letters. So you have, and then you had them influencing, I found the new school were influencing the, the old school. They were going back and forth. I mean, so it was a dynamic art form and still is. And that's, I mean, when I was in the 90s, it was another wave of graffiti because, you know, it was big in the 70s and then kind of disappeared and then started reappearing all over in different forms and it's still evolving. That's why I think it's such an amazing art form because it, um, it keeps reinventing itself as it gets co-opted and then it'll sort of go maybe go under it and then it'll come again in a different form. So, um, I'm always even looking now to see what, what the new like public space art has become so mainstream and it's become out of this in terms of you have the negative graffiti writers cleaning up, whitewashing designs onto dirty spaces and so I mean all sorts of different inventions of reinventing graffiti yeah fair enough 
Of course, with, with graffiti also being kind of an illegal activity in most cases, there's this constant struggle with police and government kind of involving themselves in graffiti as an active force against the art. Um, one of the interesting things that you end up pointing out is that their efforts seemed almost ineffective. Um, you note that the more that they would attempt to kind of crack down on graffiti, the more gra the graffiti community would attempt to kind of resist and would engage in new methods that would circumvent police and continue to kind of push their culture forward. Um, do you think that graffiti would still have become kind of what it did and in, in many ways what it still is if it wasn't for the illegal kind of nature of it? Um, like, do you think that it would still be appealing as a mode of expression to these kind of kids and youth groups if it went the route of other hip hop elements and I guess became less taboo? Well, it would be a different uh, That's hard. Do you think that they would always find some way of being illegal? But um, the illegal aspect, I guess, attracted young people, especially in terms of having to, the whole, it's, it's, it's sensational. So it, at that age, that's when it's optimized for, their, for them, you know, in terms of getting excited and their sensories and their visuals, all so alive and that you, you feel like you're really part of this uh, secret society or, so I mean, it would definitely be different and that it's the young people that are usually like the illegal aspect. Yeah. I found as they got older, they just wanted to have walls, but they didn't want to have walls controlled by somebody else. You had to earn right to the wall. So you had to practice and get your, and so that, and that you knew the ethics of skills and that you wouldn't just go. Cause you see uh, a lot of people feel, Oh, I'm a graffiti writer and, and they will pollute the environment in terms of just putting stuff up that, that nobody wants to look at, right? And so maybe you'd have more of that if it was legal. You'd have more of people just sort of spraying all over the place and it, would, uh, it wouldn't it would be that interesting. I don't know. That would be something that... Have you asked a graffiti writer how would it be different if it was... Or would they be motivated? You have to ask a young person whether well, that was the main thing that... I think in many ways it's, it's almost become that, right? So... I'll, I think the illegal nature of graffiti has been stripped away in, in many cases, um, and of course it depends on the community that you're, you're kind of speaking on, but I think it's become a lot less popularized um, to, to go out late at night. I think they would still find their own walls. They would still find their own walls, and still trains, like when I left Montreal, like, trains were becoming more and more popular, and that's still, and it's going to continue to be illegal, because they really liked that it traveled, but also the fact that it, uh, warehouses were becoming harder to find. Of course. In Montreal, they don't exist anymore. There, it's now a whole uh, Griffinville. It's become the richest part of Montreal. Well, a lot of the artists that I've spoken to um, would have came from the era that you kind of studied in the in the mid to late 90s, um, and they would have been very kind of prominent within their communities in that period of time. And a lot of them have still kept up graffiti, um, but they've done so and kind of switched over to a legal context. They're, um, they're now 40, kind of mid 40s um, in terms of age, and they're, they're not so much interested in going out late at night and, and doing these kind of criminal activities. Um, they're much more interested in, in getting paid for their work, doing murals, um, doing legal walls, doing festivals, that sort of thing, traveling yeah. the world and doing it, uh, exhibitions, right? Um, so and they I feel change like cities. Cities have graffiti. All the cities have graffiti on them. They become a tourist attraction. So they have course. created that whole public art form. Yeah. 
Um, one of the major themes in in your career, at the very least, has been has been education. And I know you credit some of your early experiences with the graffiti culture um, as influencing your educational background. Are you able to explain kind of what you mean here and how you see hip hop graffiti as an educational tool? The way of learning is, is driven by peer influence and mentorship and having a loose structure where they have a lot of ownership, but also giving the, within that structure, knowing how um, people need some kind of form. Because uh, I first became interested in doing it as an educational perspective when I was asked to go up to Mistassini. Because of my experience up north, uh, the teacher went AWOL. It's a Cree reservation, northern Quebec, and they asked if I would go up take her place till the end of semester and uh, so I've, I've never seen such solidarity against learning in this community it was, they would come in with their their fur, their coats on their parkas on and put their feet up on the desk and just look at you like to try to teach me and so I just started projecting I had just started documenting graffiti and I was just started projecting it on the walls and um, that's the first time I got their interest they sat up and they were asking me questions about it and they just thought it was pretty unusual I guess for a teacher to be showing them graffiti and then I let them just trace it onto the onto big pieces of paper because I found that everything that they did do in class they were ripping it up and throwing it away so they had a feeling that their work wasn't in the value or they were afraid or and so they got then it became like a hangout kids in the school to come and, and trace these big graffiti things and then they start then I had them doing their own words in Cree that would have, and then creating like cartoon images to integrate with it. So the whole curriculum became based on and evolved from graffiti. And then there were people skipping other classes to come and do this this work in the art room. And there was one kid that had been to Montreal and he showed me his black book and he was a very skilled graffiti writer that he'd been doing secretly on his own, but he hadn't done anything publicly, but he had a, a sketchbook full of, of different graffiti that he'd collected. So I thought that there was it was interesting that I thought here I was in this whole different culture of of Cree culture and what they really wanted to do was an urban form of graffiti, you know, because to them it represented something that was outside of the school, which they were as a group they were rebelling against, right? Was this in a high school or university setting? It was a high school. It was a gotcha. high school in Mistassini, Quebec. So then I started looking at in terms of how they were learning and what their motivations were. So my whole focus was was motivation for young people and and giving them more ownership. And I, I realized that it sort of fit the Cree culture because I'd lived up north and taught printmaking. And it was a, a, the way I taught there was a form of mentorship. You know, you have to watch to learn came from my experience up north, the way they, they mentored their elders and that's how they learned. And which I found was very different from my experience at university. Because I never saw, even during my, my undergrad, I never saw one of my profs making art. They would sort of disappear into their, uh, their rooms, except in printmaking. I had a pro that's why I gravitate towards printmaking, because I actually saw them in there making work. Yeah, it's really interesting, almost this... Um... It's. I think it's more engaging that way, right? To to have this connection with the, as you said, your. It's really a mentorship rather than um, a lecturer, um, and I feel like that's a very powerful tool in order to to learn from. Well, and they're before their time because now with the internet, that's allowed. That's everywhere where people. It's very. I've been just. <coughs> yesterday, I went. <coughs> excuse me. 
yesterday I went online to to learn about modes in, in music because I'd forgotten all about modal uh, compositions. And there, I've discovered this one guy, Brendan. He looks about 15. He's got a huge following, and he's a little boy genius who's teaching. He's creating these videos to teach online, and he he asks for questions, and then he will research those questions. And in his next podcast, he will you know answer them and and he does it so visually where he'll have the graphic of of the music he goes back in history to show influences of like how Bach influenced the Beatles but it wasn't Bach who came up with this tune it came from somebody else in the 1700s who got from from a chorale in the 1500s and he shows this melody tracing right back and I'm thinking this is how their kids especially now with the COVID and kids at home learning they're creating websites to teach each other and it's creating this global learning community that's much more exciting than going to school so maybe uh, i was thinking that covid might change education for young people because my daughter in high school to me it was a waste of time because the art teacher wasn't very good and she um that's what she wanted and yet she had to go through she was just bored all the time wasn't it wasn't the way she wanted to learn. She had to, it was too passive. She felt she always had to sit there listening to the teacher lecturing. It was old style, right? And she wasn't interested. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of kind of independent educators online that have been popping up over the last few years. And I think COVID, as you say, is, is definitely going to end up exacerbating that kind of effort um, in making it a little bit more popular and introducing it to a, a lot of new kids that are trying to end up um uh, trying to, to maintain their learning environment um, while their current learning environment or previous learning environments kind of been stripped away from them. Um, but yeah, I see on, on YouTube especially, you end up having a lot of video essays that have become kind of popular over time. Um, and again, just really over the last few years, but um, I think of um, people kind of in the film space, like Every Frame of Painting that was really celebrated and, and even liked within kind of professional film critics and whatnot, and they would end up watching their videos and and sharing them and, and kind of picking them up and, and um, yeah, I guess being and I the, saw this the voice feet, them, I saw I this fantastic. starting. I, I saw this starting as soon as the internet came in. See, I was in. I don't can't even remember the exact date, but the graffiti writers were, <clears throat> were the first ones in there creating websites because their drive was to share it among peers. Yeah, that was their audience. They didn't care about because they wanted to search out their mentors and. And that, so that motivation really taught them to learn computers. And that's why they were, uh, I noticed that they were very quickly setting up, uh, they got a warehouse given to them and, and um, skateboarding businesses were giving them computers and giving them commissions to design for skateboards. And so they were in the front line in terms of learning those skills. And again, they were doing it with their friends like Urban Expressions, I went to visit. They had a, this old warehouse that they were set up with con- all this high-tech equipment and this really run-down space and creating designs for skateboarders. Yeah. <clears throat> for skateboarding companies. So that was that was new. 
lastly, in the in the closing of the paper, you end up asking a question. Um, you say you say, quote, now that this subculture has become even more of a global community via the Internet and magazines, I question whether it will suffer from the loss of the physical reality of its local community. The more I analyzed the interviews, the more I saw diversity in individual motivations and the importance of a physical response to space, um, end quote. So given the the fact that obviously this paper was published some 20 years ago as of now, um, how do you think it turned out? Uh, that's where I would have to be in, in the city again. So I don't live in the city to see how much of it is driven by public space and how much of it is kids sitting on the computer. I would say there's much more people aware of graffiti because of the Internet now and they don't have to find their mentors by running, finding out where are the alleys and what, and waiting until these guys are going to show up in the spring. And I found that was so intriguing. Like the, um, the one documentation I did of, he said, okay, we're going to hit this, this alleyway. We're going to be the first this spring to hit the alleyway. And, and so we met there and there was this young 13 year old kid there with his sketchbook. And how did he know? They didn't tell him, but, he had been waiting and he knew that they would be there soon. Uh, so I don't know if that, that exists. That's kind of a romantic notion of mine that I liked that way of learning, that it took so much more drive to uh, to find the community and it was smaller. So um, I don't know if that would be still an important part or whether I think... In, in my terms own, of, of getting to know the community, I think it would, in your own experience, what yeah, you say? In, in my own research, um, I've deliberately chosen to kind of cover from the, the early kind of inception of the culture in different communities that I'm studying. So generally that goes from about like 1980 or so, uh, 1980, 83, kind of that era. Um, right through the, the mid-90s, and then I usually cap off most conversations around 2005, roughly. And the reason why I kind of chose 2005 as a rough date um, was because that's when I really start seeing the the loss of community because of things like the My, uh, MySpace and social media platforms um, really end up being the the driving kind of force behind the community and the community really kind of shifts towards those new mediums and those new um, platforms. So what you see is you see the the kind of DIY grassroots community that existed in the 90s. You see that start to kind of dissipate. And I think now, even if you go to kind of major urban centers, you, you see a lot less community there. Um, and it's it's people don't really know each other on a first name basis. They don't really hang out with each other. Um, when it was kind of in the nineties, even you would have kind of beefs and, and hostility to, between different groups of people. Um, but everyone knew each other personally and everyone was involved in creating that scene and that community together. Um, whereas now you, you'll end up having a lot of people that don't even, that are involved in this community in one way or another, and they don't even know who else is from that same community in their own lo local area um you'll have people introduced to each other and be like oh i didn't know that person was from my own city um i've seen his work kind of pop up online but i had no idea that he was he's doing stuff right now um i i guess it, now you have the tools 
on, at your disposal in order to create art independently, whereas before you were almost forced to um, forced to collaborate with your neighbors. Um, and I think that aspect of it has been stripped away as of now. And because of that, I feel like there's um, kind of less community. So I, I do think kind of your closing statement, at least on, on my end, um, I, I see that happening um and i i see that it happened um again my idea of it in not even so much centered around the graffiti community but more so just hip-hop in general um but hip-hop culture definitely ended up making a shift when when the internet became the more prominent tool and i think the internet's fantastic for many many things um and even in terms of the hip-hop community we've gotten a lot of unique and, and cool art that i um that I that I love and I think it's probably only a, a product of the internet um, and just having the tools at everyone's disposal and it's it's allowed a lot more people access into this art form and this culture um, but at the same time I, I do feel like it's lost a sense of the community that really happened uh, or that that really took place in the um, kind of period that you would have ended up studying in the the mid to late 90s. That's my own kind of take that, on it, anyhow. But that that was the utopic time in terms of having public space available, that there were so few graffiti writers and there were so many old warehouses and it was cheap to live in cities and it's and it's that's been all taken away. So the the whole space has changed as well. So um, I started I started to see graffiti in you know it's. I guess it's always been there, any any derelict place, but they're getting harder to find. Fair so enough. I guess the same. So do you notice there's more on trains? Is that still, do you see an increase of, of training graffiti? I would say freight trains and um, trains in general, I would say less of as of now. Um, you still see it from time to time, definitely. Um, and there's still a part of the the community that's trying to stay true to those original values and sees the value in something like freight trains. Um, but I, I see a lot less focus and a lot less um, desire in order to, to do that. Um, most of the graffiti that I see at least taking place has been an older generation that is trying to preserve their, their own craft um, and their own skill sets, but they've transitioned to legal forms of, of expression. Um, oh, interesting. That's interesting because these and some of those guys you just say, yes, they're doing murals and that, but every once in a while they'll hit a train just to prove to themselves they're keeping it real. So they still, and that's part of their nostalgia for the old days, you know? Yeah. Because and so I could see where it, like uh, it'll probably go maybe it'll it'll go down as a culture but then it'll rise again in some other form because I think it will always there'll always be the need for it. so it's it'll be an interesting thing to follow hundred percent because I because when I went to university university culture changed so much when I was there in the eighties or seventy six to eighty and did it was such a community. And um, we helped each other. And when I came back in 92, to me, it was um, everybody just trying to get their degree to get a job. And it was competitive. And the institution kind of used that as a carrot where they would have these teaching assistants 
handkerchiefs, which they would hang in front of your nose if you were a good little girl. And, and yet we were learning about Marxist theory. And yet we were under this authoritative kind of um, structure, I found, where nobody was really helping each other. And well, I shouldn't, that's maybe exaggerating, but it was a whole different ethos of, of community. The community had changed, I felt. And I think economics changes a lot when you get more people doing it, less rewards. And it was it was different when you had fewer graffiti writers and more public space available. <laughs>